NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Wildfires have been a constant this summer, from the enormous blazes across Canada to the recent deadly Maui fires. Are wildfires becoming bigger and more frequent? And if so, why? We're speaking today with Rob Scheller, a professor of landscape ecology here at NC State, about what's feeding the fires and what, if anything, we can do to prevent them. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Tracy. Happy Um, to be here. I'm super glad you're here um, because this is a very timely topic, and it's something that we at NC State work on and with quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of start by putting this year in perspective. Okay. Um, On average, how many wildfires do we see across North America in a given year? That's a tough question to answer because wildfires are so variable. They are anything from a tiny little backyard fire that gets a little out of control to half a million hectares. Okay. Um, so anything from those tiny little ones that uh, almost no one measures, uh, but they always have the potential to spread and become something bigger to these big blowout fires that you see in the news. Right. Huge variation, and so I'm afraid I don't have an exact number for you. Okay. But you generally would see more than, like, Five or ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. More than ten. More than ten. And uh, less, less than, than a million. Less than a million. Okay. But they are sort of a natural, are they a natural part of the landscape? So that really depends. Okay. A lot of fires, and it really it depends on location. In the United States, in general, about 80% of fires are caused by humans. Oh, okay. So usually accidental ignitions. Um, occasionally you get some arson, but normally just an accidental, I don't know, cigarette thrown out the window or a bonfire got a little out of control, that kind of thing. Uh, a gender reveal party gone wrong. A gender reveal party wrong. gone wrong. Yeah, yeah. Could be teenagers playing with fireworks that caused a big fire in Oregon six years ago. So humans accidentally caused most of the fires in the United States. In Canada, it's the reverse. It's mostly lightning ignited in Canada. Is there, I mean, is there a reason for that? Just that we're mostly, we're more, I don't know, flagrantly disobeying proper rules with fire? Uh, No, I'd say it's just a function of there's far many more people in the United States, higher density of people. Uh, In the United States, there's a lot more people who live in what we call the wildland urban interface, which is your house is neighboring to the woods, uh, but perhaps close to roads. So it's somewhat in between, not exactly the suburbs, but not way out in the country either. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see a lot of the ignitions happening. And we have a lot more of that wildland urban interface in the United States, particularly North Carolina, uh, as compared to Canada. It just seems as though um, this year there have been a lot more bigger fires. Uh, well, Canada, I, w- I would argue, is not an outlier this year. It's okay. just a function of the weather we're experiencing. Okay. So Canada this year has been extremely dry, and uh, the fire season started really early. So the, the fuels that are necessary for a fire to burn, think of pine needles and little branches on the ground, that kind of thing. Uh, they dried out really early this year. So that is kind of when the fire season begins is when those fuels get dry enough to burn. And the fire season began really early this year, and it's been very dry in Canada this year. So that's a function of 
climate change, and layered on top of that is El Nino weather patterns that we're experiencing right now. When you get the El Nino pattern, it tends to be the northern latitudes in North America, Canada, you know, Minnesota, uh, tend to be drier. And then where we are in the south, southeast, tend to be wetter on average. Mm -hmm. So it's this combination of uh, weather and climate change is just making the fire seasons earlier, just amplifying what usually happens with El Nino. Okay. And so that was kind of what I was getting at with, you know, what's making this year different. Yeah. Um, can we back up a little bit and talk about what is considered, quote unquote, fire season? I know you said it started earlier this year. Yeah. Um, so, for example, you know, you got hurricane season that goes May through November. So what is yeah. fire season? Well, yeah, it varies all across the United States. So, you know, in Canada, it's when those fuels dry out, um, can be, you know, as early as April. Um, and that's as soon as those fuels are dry enough that they can burn and carry a fire, that's when fire season begins. And it ends when it's too cold or too wet to carry a fire. And that the duration of the fire season varies a lot by location and from year to year, just huge year to year variation. So let's take California as an example. California had experienced many horrendous fire years over the last decade uh, because the same phenomena you're seeing in, in Canada, where the fire season starts earlier, things dry out really fast, you have on layered on top of that really high temperatures, and that creates a long fire season. This year, however, California so far has not seen hardly any fires, and that's because they had such a huge snowpack this year. So you had all those um, atmospheric rivers dumping precipitation in California, high altitudes that comes down as snow. So they had many, many feet of snow, and that snow is still melting. So that's keeping things pretty wet in the mountains of California. And so their fire season has barely begun. Now, a little farther north in Oregon and Washington, they didn't get nearly as much snow. Uh, they haven't seen a lot of fires yet, but they're experiencing a heat dome right now. And people are really worried that you could see some big blow-up fires in the coming weeks in Oregon and Washington. So I guess the question then becomes, you know, we know that with climate change, you're, you're thinking that things are going to get hotter and drier. Yep. Um, Not necessarily drier, though. So it's okay. going to be variable from year to year. Okay. You're going to see some really wet years, California this year, and then some really dry years. But it only takes one really dry year and a hot dry year for those fuels to dry out and be amenable to a big fire. So North Carolina, we experienced, or the, the Appalachians, I should say, experienced a big fire in 2016, the Chimney Top Fire. And that was in December, at the very end of the fire season, but the conditions were just perfect where uh, it was a dry year, things got uh, really dried out. Uh, and then in the fall, you know, you have a lot of leaf litter and you had some good winds, uh, carried the fire uh, quite a long distance, ended up 30 people dying. Wow. And if I said 2017, I meant 2016. Chimney yeah. top fire. Um, so do fire, are there, I guess, are there fire management techniques that forestry folks do or ecologists do to try to, I mean, obviously you cannot go through a national forest and rake up the leaf litter, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like that's not going to happen. Um, but in these urban like interfaces where we're interfacing yeah. with 
um, the wilderness and where an out-of-control fire could be devastating to human life and infrastructure. Are there things that we can do to manage the risk at all? Well, yeah, 100%. There's a lot that can be done. Um, A few things, you know, right next to a home or a building, people practice what's called firescaping. We want to really clear out all the brush quite a ways away from the home uh, and just make sure there aren't any really flammable, you know, bushes right in your next to your house. Uh, so backing the vegetation away, creating a safe space around the house, it's a, that helps a lot for individual buildings. Um, you know, you can also do some thinning around the forest generally uh, that can reduce big crown fires from happening. Uh, that's a little more, ex- you know, it's also very expensive, and you can only do that immediately right around, you know, homes and structures or in that wildland urban interface where you just don't want a big crown fire. It's not um, compatible with other uses, right? Right. Um, what is a crown fire? Yeah, uh, sorry. A crown fire is when the fire jumps up into the canopy of particularly conifers. Uh, so, you know, when you see fires in Canada or California, you see, you know, the ones that make the news are the ones where the tops of the trees are on fire and flames shooting up 40 feet into the air. That's a crown fire. Okay. And that's what we want to avoid. (laughs) Around humans, definitely. (laughs) Okay. Now, the other thing you can do to help manage fire is prescribe fire, where you're preemptively putting out some fire when the weather conditions are safe for low-intensity fires, and you have a crew out there carefully managing it, making sure it doesn't escape. Now, sometimes they do escape. But generally, prescribed fire is a little bit cheaper than thinning or doing that, you know, firescaping right around the house. You can cover quite a bit more um, area with prescribed fire. And the idea is to have that prescribed fire remove some of those fine fuels that carry fire and get rid of those fuels that help fire get up into the canopy and that cause crown fires. So doing prescribed fire, you need to do it pretty frequently, anywhere from two every two to five years. But that can really reduce the risk of uh, the bad fire. Do they do that a lot out west, particularly? Where they they do that a lot out west. We also here? do that a lot in North Carolina. Okay. Um, people are doing it for restoration purposes in the Appalachians. So uh, prior to European settlement, uh, Native Americans practice prescribed fire on a re- very regular basis. And those forests were fire-adapted forests. Uh, so in the Appalachians, they're trying to use prescribed fire to restore it back to those uh, conditions before Europeans excluded fire. In eastern North Carolina, uh, we currently use prescribed fire a lot just to help manage the forest. So it's, it's a forest management technique, um, but also used for restoration. So I've done some research in Fort Bragg down by Fayetteville, and they use prescribed fire a lot to maintain habitat for endangered species. So they go out there with basically flamethrowers and burn every parcel of land every two to three years. So really aggressive prescribed fire regime there. Again, they're using it, in this case, to maintain uh, endangered species habitat. What species need to be living in a burned-out area every two years? Yeah, in particular, the red-cockaded woodpecker, which is on the endangered species list. And Fort Bragg is the largest intact piece of land 
uh, with red cockaded woodpecker habitat. So it's a really important place for the, the woodpeckers. And they do a great job down there maintaining it. And if they didn't do the prescribed fire, I guess you mean that they would lose the trees that these... No, what would happen if you get rid of the prescribed fire is you just get a lot of shrubs and understory, uh, small trees coming up. And the woodpeckers really like to be able to fly through nice open understory. They don't like all the, the dense shrub and small trees. They like a more open understory. And so you need the prescribed fire to keep it open. Okay, so those woodpeckers do not like a cluttered landscape. They do they not like, like a cluttered landscape. Tree to tree. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're the, wide yeah. open spaces Maria between Kondo the trees. Maria Kondo of woodpeckers, <laughs> I think. Okay, so, you know, what about fire prediction? Uh, yeah, well, of course, we we would like to know how much fire there's going to be. Right. Um, uh, it's a challenging business. It's, it's what we do in my lab is try to understand how fire regimes will change as climate changes. And, um, yeah, it's it's tough to – it's always tough to predict the future. Right. Uh, because we don't know exactly what the climate is going to be like. And we don't even really understand fires as well as we thought we did. We're seeing fires now that people really thought of if you went back in time 10, 15 years ago. People would have said, that's not even possible, these mega fires that we've been seeing. So in California, just these giant fires are so they're so powerful, they're sucking in air from around the surrounding landscape. Uh, so these giant mega fires are incredibly uh, intense, just incredibly high temperatures. They spread to huge areas. We just have no experience with this. And so sometimes it's hard to predict the future when the past doesn't give you any clues about the, what the future might be like. So we use these rare, really huge fires. They're rare now, but probably will become more frequent in the future. We use those rare uh, mega fires to help us understand the future under different climate conditions. So we train our models using these exceptional fires. Okay, so you're feeding basically fire data into computer models. Yeah, and then correct. Pairing that up with potential future climates to see, okay, given this climate, given this vegetation, if there's an ignition, what might happen? Okay, so it's not going to tell you necessarily the likelihood of an ignition because that would just depend on the weather that particular year, right? Yeah, ignitions depend on both the weather and then those random human variables. And then about people being dumb. Yeah. People being dumb, <laughs> the teenagers with the fireworks and all that. Right. So ignitions, it's really hard to pinpoint where ignition will happen. Right. We can see general patterns on the landscapes, which is where you have more people, you have more ignitions. But that doesn't tell you exactly there's going to be ignition this place on that day. Right, right. So on. Like next June, we're probably yeah, going to yeah. have 15 fires in this particular stretch of land. It's not that. It's more <laughs> if an ignition happens in this place with these conditions, yeah. this is what we can expect to see. I mean, yeah, we and we're really, intensity? we try to understand really long-term patterns looking out decades. Okay. Not next year per se. Okay. You know, but we can see these long-term trends. And so I'll just give you one example. Uh, in the southern Appalachians, uh, we've been looking at, you know, what is the future of fire in the southern Appalachians? And it really depends a lot about, about how drought and weather will vary in the future. But we could see up to 
a 500% increase in fire in the southern Appalachians if things get drier, and they will almost certainly get drier, or the fuels will get drier. And we see more climate variability, you know, more of that big swings from year to year. And if you've been following the weather recently, it does seem like we're seeing a lot more variability where it'll be really dry one year, really wet the next. And so if you see this combination of things getting drier, the fuels getting drier because of temperatures uh, as well as precipitation and big year-to-year variation, you could see five times as much fire in the southern Appalachians. So, you know, with your predictions and a lot more fire in the Appalachians, and there's a lot of Appalachians to burn um, because, yes, people live there, but there's a lot of, like, Pisgah National Forest mm-hmm. and yep. other preserved areas. Um, you know, does this work inform the way that state and local governments should be preparing for this? What about firefighting techniques? Are they going to have to shift as well? If you've got yeah. some enormous fire that's basically creating its own weather system, how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, well... You know, sometimes, well, we'd like our work to always be informative to management. I mean, that is the goal. Right. But it's not a one-to-one relationship where, oh, we publish a paper and people are going to run out and buy expensive aircraft. Right. Um, it is a, a process of helping people understand uh, the potential futures and just giving them the information and the tools to make better decisions. Uh, but it's not always possible to manage a situation. You know, what you're seeing in Canada, just these enormous fires. I don't even know how many tens of millions of acres we're up to now in Canada. And there's a lot of fire season left to go up there. Uh, A lot of that is just uncontrollable. It's such a vast area. And these fires are burning in very remote areas. And, you know, the firefighting force is stretched to the limit. There's only so many firefighters in North America that are available to help with these enormous fires. And so sometimes the best you can do is keep people out of the way, try to protect property where you can, um, and sometimes you just have to let it burn. Okay. And so, again, going back to sort of your average suburban home, um, so the mulch beds right up next to the house with the shrubbery, not a good idea. (laughs) Not that I'm asking from personal experience or anything. Like, we don't have pine straw. We don't, we're not yeah, using yeah. the pine straw around the house. Well, so um, shrubbery in North Carolina actually, well, it depends on the shrubbery. It could be a benefit. Okay. So some shrubbery creates a, a green buffer. Uh, so if your shrubs uh, remain nice and green, not all shrubs are super flammable. That can actually reduce uh, the probability of a fire getting up to the house. In other places, not so much. So farther south where you have palmetto, those shrubs that have palm leaves, mm-hmm. maybe you're familiar with that. Those are really flammable, and you really don't want those next to your house. So those, you know, dry out really good, and they're just highly flammable. Um, and, you know, where you see the firescaping, that's more in uh, remote areas, particularly in the western United States, where we just want to keep the fire away from the homes. Now, your house in the suburbs of Raleigh, Probably safe yes. from fire. We have a pretty good road network uh, where you have a lot of roads. It's pretty easy to drive a fire truck right up to it and keep the fire out. Right. Um, I always ask this question. So it's my what's the coolest thing you know question. 
Yeah. <laughs> so what is the most interesting or the coolest factoid that you have discovered about fire or fire management while you're doing this work? Yeah. Um, you know, my work isn't specific to fire. What I study is how climate change is going to affect forests. Right. And wildfire is really one of the most important things uh, as far as what can happen to forests right. given climate change. And, you know, we're seeing that play out around the world right now. Uh, in general, and I don't know if this is a cool thing um, or if it's more like a new reality that has that I've learned about over the last you know 20 years that I've been studying this, is there is a lot we can do. Management can be you know pretty effective of helping forests adapt to climate change. Uh, there's just tons of things. It's not just about wildfire, it's about planting different tree species and trying to prevent insect uh, mortality of trees. Um, there's a lot we can do, but it's going to take a huge effort, a huge investment. And I think people need to internalize this. If we want to keep forests into the future, uh, we want to keep the, you know, California forested. We uh, want to make sure all our forests are, are healthy, even given climate change. It's going to take a lot of money. And it's not going to be like a, a one and done kind of thing. It's going to be investment over decades into the future. Like we just don't even know when climate change is going to start slowing down, uh, much less reversing. And so it's just going to take a huge effort on our part globally, and I mean everyone, uh, in order to keep forests healthy and, and so that we can keep benefiting from forests. Well, thank you so much for being here You're today. You're welcome. I think this has been very informative. We have been speaking today with Rob Scheller, Professor of Landscape Ecology here at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening.